you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42, one of the longest books of your Bible. We're going to spend the next four weeks in Isaiah. As I thought about Isaiah's contribution to the big story, I, we really could have spent all of our time in Isaiah. Um, but what I want us to do is I want us to look at four servant songs that reveal specifically the person of Christ. Even our Jewish friends hold that these refer to the Messiah. And they'll have a lot to amaze us and to minister to us as we read them. So Isaiah chapter 42. This morning we're just going to read the first nine verses. The sermon primarily comes from just the first four verses. It says this. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, I pray for my congregation this morning. Oh, how precious are their voices. How powerful are their testimonies. And perhaps, Father, how weak are their spirits. Lord, we are wounded people living in a chaotic and disordered world. And we feel bruised and beaten. Our fate feels like it's just flickering on fumes. And so, Father, the hope that we have with a flickering faith and a bruised spirit is to look up and to see Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, kind and strong, high and lifted up, that our spirit might be reignited, that our faith might be fanned, that our wounds might be healed. I pray this morning that that's exactly what we would do as we look at Isaiah That you, through the Spirit of God, would open up our eyes to see and encounter the risen Christ in a way that transforms us, encourages us, amazes us, provokes us into worship. I pray all that are broken this morning would be made whole by the person of Christ. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, in my house, I'm not really famous for my gentleness. There's kind of a running joke that if you have a bolt that you want tightened, or if you have a bag of chips that you want opened, you don't go to Dad. Because Dad, when he opens the chips, he opens it all the way, right? Like, that's... that, That the joke is, is that I basically manhandle everything that I use. And so... The kids will go to Megan, and she's the one that is able to take care of these things and handle them with finesse and with gentleness. And it it goes a lot further than just 
uh, bolts and chip bags, obviously. If, uh, if someone's hurt, if someone's sick, if someone's sad, they don't want dad. Now, they, they like to hang out with me. We do a lot of fun things. We go on adventures and we hike and they like to wrestle with me on the floor and do all the fun stuff with dad. But, but when life gets tough, when the wind gets knocked out of them, literally or figuratively, even if I'm the first one on the scene of the crash, I and the kids, the kids and me have an agreement that I'm just a placeholder. I'm just a place, and it doesn't offend me. I understand. I'm just a placeholder until mom gets there. That Megan, she brings such a soft touch to our family. But you know, really, it takes, it takes both of those things, doesn't it? To have a balanced household. When a household is functioning and according to its truest design and its fullest health, you, you need the gentle touch of the mother and you need the force of the dad. You, you need that, that strength and that kindness to come together and to work in concert with one another. That there is a time and a place and a season for both of those in the good of the life of the child and the functioning of that household. And in fact, I think this is part of what Paul is alluding to. I think there are so many things that are he's, he's alluding to. That's why he calls it a mystery. But in Ephesians chapter 5, when he says that the relationship between a husband and a wife, a mom and a dad, portray the mystery of the gospel, I think part of what that portrayal is, is to see the balance of the person of Christ. That Jesus is both warrior and nurturer. That Jesus is both strong and kind. That Jesus is both one who will come with great force and one who will come in great gentleness to us. And this helps us to understand really what I think Isaiah is intending to communicate through these four servant songs. So we're going to see there's, there's four different times for, between Isaiah chapter 42 and Isaiah chapter 53. Some people think verse six, chapter 62 would be included too. We're not going to cover that one because in these four chapter, or these four ser- songs between those chapters, the word my, the phrase my servant comes up four different times to portray to us how God is going to bring about great care and help for his people. The, ma- the message of Isaiah is one of polar, of poles, right? Like on, on one end, it's a message of affliction. Isaiah tells the people of Judah that they are going to go into exile in Babylon. They are going to leave their promised land. The, the judgment of God is going to come against them. And then on the other end, this is so beautiful how God does this, even though he is disciplining his people, and even though he's bringing judgment to his people, he uses Isaiah at the same time to tell them how they can be comforted in the midst of their exile. How they can be encouraged in the midst of their discipline. How they can hold the faith and how he will sustain them even though they deserve him to withdraw altogether. And I think what he's trying to communicate through these servant songs is by telling them how he is going to work on their behalf to preserve them, to save them, to work in their lives. That they can be encouraged as they live in exile. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need. That's what we need. We are having a tough time in a disordered world and we need the Lord to tell us how it is that we can be encouraged to live on mission for him. And so I want us to see here these three things about the servant of Christ, the servant of God, the person of Christ that can encourage us as we walk through exile. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus will make it right. Jesus We'll make it right. Several years ago, we were uh, doing some renovations into our, in our children's building. 
And one of the things that we were doing is we were, we were putting down uh, new flooring. And uh, Dale Turner, who's an elder here, he also works for web flooring. And he was overseeing that project for us. And the, the gentleman that he had sent to come and to install the flooring had ran into some complications. And he had gotten frustrated. And he had called and he had explained to Dale that the project couldn't go on as in the way that it had been planned to go on. So the next day, Dale stops by. And he goes in, and I noticed that Dell was in there for hours, for a long time. We came back by, and as he was walking by my office, I said, Hey, Dell, were, were you able to figure it out? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Yep. He said, You know, Cody, there are two kinds of men in this world. There are those that will, and there are those that won't. And now I know which one he is. I like, whoa, whoa. I, I mean, I, I stood up a little bit straighter, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you'll, you'll notice here in chapter 42 begins with the word, Behold. This actually comes up three times. If we went back to chapter 41, in a six-verse period, he says, behold, three times. And it's because in our minds, there's supposed to be a contrast that is taking place. That if you go back to chapter 41, and you see the first two times that behold comes up, he says, behold, look at your idols. Behold, look at these other gods that you're bowing down to. Are they actually taking care of you? Are they actually delivering on their promises? Are they actually providing for you? Are they actually blessing for you? He says, behold, they are a delusion of the mind. Behold, they are figments of your imaginations. They say they will do all of these things, but they always underdeliver. And then he comes into verse 42 and he says, I am a God different than them. There are two kinds of gods. There are those who will and there are those who won't. The idols will not, but I am a God who will. I am a God who will step into the midst of my creation. I am a God that will preserve my people. I am a God that will deliver on my promises. I am a God who will. And as he goes on to describe the servant that he's going to send to us, he uses in just four verses, he uses uh, he will three different times. And I want us to get the whole framework of the message today from those three he will statements that we find here in the uh, servant song of Isaiah chapter 42. Now the first one I think is actually the main point. There's only one of the he will statements that he says twice. Look at what he says, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And now see the first one. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now let's keep going. Verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And so twice he says what the servant is going to accomplish is it is going to be the servant's business to bring about justice for his people. Another way for him to say that is that what the servant is going to do is he's going to make right what has went wrong. He's going to make right what has went wrong. He's going to bring about justice for his people, justice for the nations, so that his people will be able to prosper in spite of all that's happened. That all the nations that come against him, he's going to make it right. All that they've lost, he's going to make it right. He will make right what has went wrong. I want you to see that in two dimensions. First, he will overthrow your enemies. He will overthrow your enemies. He's saying that, that, that is part of what he's saying. When he's going to bring justice to the nations, he's talking about nations like Babylon that will come against his people, nations that will carry them off into exile, enemies that are standing there quite literally against them. These nations that are against them are the marks of their suffering. 
And really, justice is our main concern when it comes to suffering, isn't it? When it comes to our suffering, when it comes to the seasons of hardship in our lives, the questions that we ask are, why are these things against us? Now, maybe it's, it's not as clear as it is when you have a nation like Babylon against you. But maybe you would think, why is it that my, my marriage seems to be against me? Why is it that, that my parenting seems to be harder than everybody? Why is it that I can't have children and everybody else can have children? Why is it that I'm not married yet and all of my friends and peers are married? Why is it that I have to go to a job that I hate when everyone else seems to be reaching and attaining all of their great dreams? And what we're saying when we ask these why questions is, why is my life so unfair? Why is the hand that I've been dealt so unjust? Why have all of these things come against me? Why are all of these enemies standing in my life? Why am I here in the midst of Babylon when all of my friends are delighting in the promised land? And so what he's saying is that the servant is going to come and the servant is going to bring justice to your enemies. He's going to bring justice to all of those things that have come against you. You see, if you live in exile you're very prone to fall into despair, aren't you? You're prone to, to come to a place of dismay and despondency in which you don't think there's really any way out. Imagine, it, this is the, the closest uh, comparison that I, that I can make to where Judah is going to be and what they're facing. Imagine if we were overrun by ISIS and you and your family were split up and deported to Afghanistan, and you began being a servant to those people that, that you loathe, those people that have a worldview that are completely different than your worldview, and they would oppress you, and you had to wait on them hand and foot. It would be really difficult not to wake up every single morning and think, why is my life so awful? Why is my life so miserable? Why is... Why are things going so poorly for me? What did I do to deserve this? And what you would be asking for, what you would be saying is what I want is justice. What I want is God to come and intervene. What I want is someone to come against those that have come against me and crushed them. To be able to restore to me the life that I believe is rightfully mine. You know, I probably don't have to do much convincing to convince you that you are living in exile. You can turn on the news and recognize that being a Christian now comes with significant social costs, not social benefits, perhaps like it once did. And you're reminded that you live in exile. You can look at the empty bed beside you, and you're reminded of your exile. A husband lost too soon, a mom that's gone too young. You can think about the empty cradle and the nursery that's never been. And you're reminded that you, you live in exile. You see the struggles and the tears and the anxiety that your teenagers and your children come home with. And you recognize all of the gender confusion and all of the dysphoria that is in our age. And you, you can recognize that you are living in exile. And it's hard not to fall into despair, isn't it? It's hard not to become despondent. And the temptation that we have in the midst of our exile is the exact same temptation that Judah had all those years ago. That our temptation is, is to go to the other gods that present themselves, that promise to us that they will make our lives less miserable than they are. That those, those gods that offer us some version of, of a, a, a way of feeling something that is some version of happiness. These cheap band-aid solutions. That we may be prone to believe that if I can just have sex with whomever, if I can just purchase whatever, 
if I can just go wherever, then, then I will have some sense in which my life is sensible. I will have some sense in which my life isn't as miserable as I've come to believe that it is. But what some of you have already realized and what some of you are yet to realize is that it doesn't work. Behold, God would say to us, behold, look at your idols. Behold, look at all of your relationships. Has it really made you happy? Behold, look at all of your purchases. Don't you just want another one? Behold, look at your passport. Has it really satisfied you to go and to visit and to view? Behold, all of these are figments of your imaginations. They're delusions of your mind. They're completely ineffective. So he would say instead, behold my servant. Behold my servant. Behold Christ. Behold Christ. When you're prone to despair in the midst of the exile, behold Christ. Notice that he has overcome your greatest enemy. He has overcome the grave. He has overcome your sin. He has been resurrected from the dead. He has verified that he is my servant. And if he, if he has overcome your sin, if he has overcome your grave, he will overcome every last enemy that stands against you. He will overcome every last injustice that you have experienced and that you have known that your sorrow will not win and your tears will not win. And and your grief will not win, and your chronic pain will not win, and the dementia will not win, and the cancer will not win, and your divorce will not win, your loneliness will not win, and they will not win because the servant has come. The servant has come. So behold, behold and see the vanity of the gods of this earth. And then behold the son, the servant who has come, who will actually Make justice reign. There's a second way in which we should understand this main point of Jesus making right that which has went wrong. And that is that he will restore your losses. That he will restore your losses. That when we recognize that God is going to come against those who have come against us. When God is going to come against those injustices that he has come against us. We've only seen half of the picture of justice as Isaiah understands it. That there's a second part. That even if he goes and he crushes Babylon, but they're still living in poverty, their life really isn't that much better, is it? Their situation really isn't that improved, is it? No, they're still missing all that is rightfully theirs. But look at what he says in verse 6. He says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant, this covenant, that this is this eternal covenant that he's made with his people for the people, a light for the nations. What is he talking? What is the significance of being a light for the nations? What he's saying is, I'm going to return the plan to be to use you as a blessing to all nations. That I'm going to bring you back under the full experience of the promises that I have made to you. I'm going to bring you back to flourish you and to prosper you as my people. That you will know the promised land again. You will one more time be in the land that flows with milk and honey. You will one more time know what it is to experience my manna raining on you from heaven. You will know one more time what it means to have me as a God with a cattle on a thousand hills. He goes on to describe in verse 7, he says this, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Do you know what he's bringing into their mind? 
There was this concept, and you can read a lot more about this in Leviticus chapter 25. I, we, we don't have the time to do a deep dive there, and, and you may not think there's anything great in Leviticus. Leviticus is awesome when you begin to understand the person of Christ. I want to encourage you in that. But if you go to the book of Leviticus chapter 25, it talks about something called the year of jubilee. The year of jubilee. That in, ingrained in the law of God for his people was a year of renewal and restoration. That every 50th year... If you had a debt that you owed to someone else, that debt was free. You were free of that debt. It was paid in full. You were, you, were, uh, you were excused from the debt. If you had had to sell off a part of your land, a part of your birthright to make ends meet, the land that you had sold off was returned to you. Wouldn't this be awesome? Wouldn't this be awesome? If, if you were in prison... And you were locked up for some charge that was against you. You were exonerated from the charges. And they would go and they would open up the prison doors. And those that were once in bondage and those that were once locked away were set free to go and to live about their lives again. And you hear what he's saying? Blind eyes are going to be opened again. Prison doors are going to be unlocked again. That you're going to go into the midst of the exile and you're going to feel as though you have a debt that will never be paid off. You're going to go into the midst of Babylon and it's going to feel like you've been locked in a prison and the key has been thrown away. But there is a servant that is coming and when that servant comes he's going to bring about a jubilee. And now it won't be every 50 years, now it will be every day. You see when you're in exile you're not just prone to despair, you're prone to bitterness. You're prone to store up vengeance and store up venom because of all of the pain that you've incurred and all of the affliction that you've experienced. And it ends up spilling out on all the people around you because other people have to pay for what you have known and what you have experienced. But what he is showing his people, what he is showing his people is that there is a servant that is coming that will defang their bitterness. That what the cross does at the center of the Christian's life, is neutralize and defang the venom that we are prone to store up toward all of the experiences that we have. My goodness, we've experienced some losses around here, haven't we? Oh, we've experienced some losses. We've buried brothers, we've buried husbands, we've buried children. Some of you, you've lost marriages over the last 10 years since I've been here. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you have lost your hope. Some of you lost your health. Some of you have lost your sense of peace. Some of you have lost, in maybe some ways, the beginnings of your faith. But what I want you to see is that what God is saying to you is that He will restore every loss. He will restore every loss. There is a day of jubilee that is coming for you. And we know it because Christ has come. Christ has been raised. The servant has been victorious. And he's going to unlock your jail cell. And he has paid off your debt. And you are going to walk free. This is how Paul is able to say we, that we have this light and momentary affliction. It's not because it feels light, it feels heavy. Not because it feels easy, it feels painful. We have a light, momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is yet to come. The jubilee is coming. And all that you've lost will be restored to you in such bountiful and abundant 
provision that you will be able to say, all that has been lost I now count as gain because I have Christ and I have the inheritance that has been secured for me there. Oh, Jesus is going to make it right. And justice is going to reign. Brothers and sisters, break off the bitterness, the, the, break off the bitter fang into the bloodstained cross, wood of the cross, that you might be set free from the bondage that you're walking in. Jesus will make it right. And Jesus will treat you gently. And Jesus will treat you gently. One of my trips to Africa, John uh, was actually on this trip with me. We're in a, a township, a, a very impoverished township in South Africa called Boikatsu. And we're going into the store, we're going to buy a, a Coke or a water or something along those lines. And as we go in to buy the Coke or the water, these two children come up and they're just in, in just rags for clothes. They're barefoot. One is a little bit taller than the other, but I would say the oldest was maybe nine or ten years old. The other one maybe uh, five or six years old. And they came up to us and they, they asked us for bread and milk. Well, of course, of course, we provided them bread and milk. And when our host saw us hand over the bread and milk, he invited us to step aside. He said, I want you to watch what's going to happen next. We, he brought us to the edge of the, of the little store that was in the midst of a, just a little shack. And he brings us to the edge and he says, watch. And those little boys, they take off and they're running as fast as they can run, as hard as they can run. And we watch them with the bread and the milk in their hands running as hard and as fast as they can run. And all of a sudden we see a much larger boy chasing after them. Maybe even a, a, in his early 20s. And he goes, and he's running after him. And those little boys are running with everything that they've got. And they're digging and digging and digging. But they are no match for the speed of, of the older boy. And he runs them down and he tackles them to the ground. And he takes from them the bread and the milk. And then he grabs them both by the back of the neck. And he brings them over to a line. And on the other side of a, of a semi-trailer, we see on their knees a line of young boys just like that. On their knees, hands behind their backs. And our host explained to us that what we were witnessing was a human trafficking ring. That all of those boys are trafficked for sex. And they utilize them in this way to be able to get the provisions that they need. And that 100% of them, based on the research of the South African government, are HIV positive. And he referred to them, I'll never forget the phrase because it's so jarring. It's two words that, that don't belong together. He said those are damaged children. Those are damaged children. Can you think of any two words in the English language that don't belong together more than those damaged children? Now, the circumstances are quite different. But in some sense, all of us are damaged children. As I looked at those children bound and on their knees behind, I can only imagine the despair and the despondency that they felt. And I just thought, you know, I wonder how much they would give for a gentle touch. Consider how starved they were for a gentle touch. Many of us may feel some measure of that, some degree of that. Our situation is not as severe. Our situation is not as dire. But our brokenness is begging for a gentle touch, isn't it? The damage that we feel in our spirits and on our souls and the troubles that we've accumulated and the burdens that we carry. I wonder how many of you, even on this Mother's Day, maybe especially on this Mother's Day, you're longing for a gentle touch. Look at what else he says that the servant will do. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He won't come yelling. He won't come shouting. 
He won't come angry with you. A, reed, a bruised reed, he will not break. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So encompassed in this concept of justice, he wants to give a description on who he is. And the way that you'll know who he is is by what he does. By how he responds to the people. By how he responds to his people. By how he responds to those that are beaten down and broken up. And what he wants us to get across is to those that are on the edge of exile, those who are living in profound sin, those who are in the midst of idolatry, those against whom the judgment of God, the discipline of God will fall, his own people, that when the servant comes, he will come gently. He will come gently. That Jesus came to treat his people gently. That he will nurse your bruises it says there, specifically, and this is quoted again in Matthew chapter Matter of fact, I would recommend you, there, there's a, a Puritan by the name of Richard Sibes wrote a book, an entire book on this phrase. It's called The Bruised Reed. And in one of my very darkest seasons of life, I, that book was a treasure for me. A treasure for me. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. Reeds in that day were plentiful. They, they, they were a dime of dozen, a dozen. You could find them anywhere, but they, it was good that they had them because they don't have a lot of, of huge trees and forest in the Middle East, as you might have noticed on the news. And so th- having a resource like these reeds was actually very, very helpful. And so they were, what they would use them, they would use them for everything, for basically from making a papyrus in which they could write down scrolls, just like what Isaiah had, all the way to, to being able to thatch the roof. But if the, ro- if the reed was bruised, if the reed was bent in half or had a crease in it, they were so plentiful it wasn't worth using. It was, it was compromised at that point. And so what you would do is you would take the reed and you would break it over your knee and you would throw it on the burn pile. And when you got enough of them, you would burn them up. They'd have somebody like Andrew come in and just take care of it. Yeah, that was quick, wasn't it? That just, it, came right, it came right to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so... What he's wanting us to see is that we, we are the bruised reeds. We are the bruised reeds. That we don't appear to be worth much because we're so weak. Because we're creased, we're marked, we're scarred. We aren't much good when when the Lord finds us, are we? In fact, the word bruised there, it's really meant to bring into our minds all those things in this life that we encounter living in the midst of a cursed world that that mark us and wound us and bring brokenness into our lives. It's when people sin against you. It's, It's going to school every day and being bullied. It bruises you, doesn't it? It's the trauma of your childhood. It it bruises you. It's the abuse that you've known and you face. It's the abandonment of of your husband, of your wife. It bruises you. It it begins to to form how you even understand yourself and who you understand yourself to be. It's beyond that, though. It, It also encounters just the disorder that you find in the world, right? That sometimes it's not a specific person trying to inflict malice against you. But cancer still comes. And death still comes. And dementia still comes. Bankruptcy still comes. And it's not one person that has a vendetta against you. It's not even maybe something that, that you've done wrong. But it's a, it's a bruising that you experience. Infertility comes into your life. Miscarriage that carries forward all kinds of woundedness with it. That, that hardly anybody even talks about. It's a wound to the soul. Makes you feel like a bruised person, doesn't it? A bruised reed. It reminds you of your weakness. It also encompasses our own sin. I have in my mind 
uh, in something, something in the Song of Solomon, which I know is a strange reference here from Isaiah 42. But, but the Shulamite bride, she turns away her husband, and she really does it in spite, and she's angry. And it says something interesting. It says at that point, the watchman comes, and he begins to beat her. And the watchman is a metaphor for her conscience. That her conscience begins to bludgeon her over her negative response to her husband. And I wonder how many of you, your conscience is just beating you down every day, reminding you of all of your shortcomings, reminding you of all of your failures, reminding you of all of your sinfulness, reminding you of the checkered past that you have, reminding you of of the bad decisions that you've made, reminding you of all of the mistakes that you've had. However it is, you're here and you're bruised. And all of us who come to Jesus, I want you to think about this because it really shook me up this week as I thought about it. We all come to Jesus as damaged goods, don't we? Every one of us. We come to Jesus and we are bent and scarred and bruised. But the servant, the servant does not take you and break you over his knee and throw you into the burn pile. A bruised reed he will not break. The servant takes the bruised reed and he makes him whole. The servant takes those that all the scars and all the disorder and all the bludgeoning of their conscience and the scarring of their past and the decisions that they've made and the failures that they have and the weakness that they feel. And he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. The question is, is will you trust Jesus with your bruises? Will you trust Jesus with your bruises? Will you bring to him all of that past and all the decisions and all the failures and all the abuses and all the things that you've encountered? Will you bring them to him today? What you can be certain of is that he will nurse your bruises. Not only will he nurse your bruises, though, he will tend your flame. I think this is so beautiful. He goes on to say, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. A faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. See, living in exile... The promises of God can almost become an eye roll opportunity. You're in there and you're, you're carrying in the coffee to the, to the Lord in Babylon. And someone says, hey, hey, Gala, it's going to be fine. Just keep believing in the Lord. Keep trusting in the Lord. And after enough days of serving coffee to the Lords of Babylon, you begin to just roll your eyes. Okay, well, where is the Lord? Where is he? And you probably have experienced something like that. How many times over the course of your life have people told you that Jesus is going to return? And in your mind, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that all my life, but where is he? Everybody keeps saying that, but where is he? And the promises of God that are meant to sustain us and meant to keep us going, they just become an eye roll because we're living here in the midst of exile, serving up coffee to the lords of Babylon. So the picture of the smoldering wick is a faith that isn't blazing, it's just flickering. It's a hope that isn't a bonfire. It's, 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 a, it's a dim light. It's, it's barely there. That the faith that used to be so vibrant, the, the faith that used to be so strong, the, the faith that used to be so certain is barely hanging on. But you see, the thing about fires is that if you just leave them alone, they burn out, don't they? If you just leave a fire alone and you, you let it do its own thing, eventually the fire will run out of fuel and the fire will burn away. And that's the glory of the servant. That's the glory of the servant upon whom the Spirit God has, has placed. 
That's the glory because what happened is the spirit is, is the servant came and the servant was raised from the dead and the servant sent the spirit and now the spirit dwells in us. The spirit of fire. We're reminded again that we are not saved by the quality of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. You are not saved because of how strong your faith is or how brightly your wick is burning. You are saved because Jesus, Jesus has come and Jesus will keep you. And Jesus will sustain you by his own fire, not yours. So this morning, if you find in yourself a flickering faith, if you find in yourself a dim light of hope, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring and offer that to Jesus. Jesus, I wish I had more to give you. Jesus, I wish I could present to you a really strong, sturdy tree, but I am just a bruised reed. I wish I could come to you, Lord, and I wish I could provide for you a blazing fire that, that burns up all of the idols of this world, but all I can offer you is a smoldering wick. And Jesus says, you will not be sustained because of how weak your flame is. You will be sustained because of how strong I am on your behalf. He will tend your flame. He will keep you. You will not keep you. Finally, I want you to see that Jesus will not get tired. Jesus will not get tired. One of the markers of the human condition is that we grow tired of things. We grow tired of things that we really like. That, that's how you can have two people who are so in love, they make a commitment, they're going to spend the rest of their lives with one another. And over time, sometimes it's not that they've done anything wrong. They say, I'm just tired of you. I'm just tired of you. You, you can build your house and you can build it in a certain place because you want to accent a certain view. And a month after you live there, you don't even notice the view anymore. You grow tired of it, right? You can have a job that you wanted more than any other job in the world. And you would have, you would have given your left arm to be able to have that job. And then you get the job. And six months after, you complain about it more than you enjoy it. The human condition grows tired of things. Matter of fact, we grow tired of doing good. That's why Paul has to say, don't grow weary of doing good. Why does he have to tell us not to grow weary of doing good? We grow tired of doing good. That you can be on fire for missions and then, and then all of a sudden grow tired of it. You can be on fire for reaching your neighbors and your family with the gospel and making disciples and then you can grow tired of it. You can be on fire for spending time with Christ and doing your Bible reading or leading a Bible study at, work, at, at, at your job and then it just becomes too much work and you grow tired of it. And the concern that we can have is that we can believe that Jesus is going to grow as tired of doing good as we do. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is Jesus is not just gentle and kind. Jesus is strong and patient. Jesus endures in doing good. Jesus perseveres in doing good. And that's the significance of the next he will. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He will not grow tired, grow weary of doing good. In fact, he will suffer patiently. He will suffer patiently. If you look at the word faint here, this is the exact... So if we were reading this in Hebrew, there would be some triggers that we would have. Faint has the same root word as bruised. And then discouraged has the same word, uh, root word as dim or faint, depending on your translation of the wick that was described earlier. And so he's just described us. And he's just described how we've been bruised and how we've been beaten. And then he goes in to describe the, the servant and using the exact same sounds to bring into our mind, it says that in the, the servant, he's going to experience those too, except he's not going to grow tired of it. 
He's going to be beaten. He's going to be bruised. He's going to be crushed. He's gonna, his, his hope is going to look dim, but he's going to persevere where we have fallen away. See, the servant is going to come, and he's not going to come in a Sherman tank that's armored against all of the attacks that we experience on this earth. The servant is going to come, and he's going to sur- suffer right beside us. He's going to be bruised right beside us. I do a lot of counseling. A lot of people that are going through the hardest times in their life, they come by. And, and I find it that it's our responsibility as elders and as shepherds to, to be there for you best that we can in the hardest moments of your life. But there's a, a beautiful phenomenon that I've noticed. That you can be in the hospital room with someone and you should be there. I should be there. Going through the loss of someone that's precious to them. And they're thankful that you're there. But as soon as a friend comes in that has lost someone similar, they will let go of you and they will run and they will embrace that friend. That you can have someone that, that has lost a, a marriage and had a spouse abandon them and, and they want their pastor, they need their pastors to shepherd them through that. But as soon as they find a friend that has went through that themselves and experienced that abandonment and that, that sense of betrayal, they will let go of their pastor and they will run to their friend. That there is a peculiar power A peculiar power in a friend who's been there, isn't there? Behold, behold, all of the idols, they hold you at arm's length. Behold, all of the idols promise you that they'll be there and they aren't. Behold, there is a servant who will come near to you in the midst of your suffering. There is a servant who has been there where you are. That Jesus is the friend that has been exactly where we are and suffered just as we have suffered. And in fact has suffered in our stead that one day our suffering might have a governor. That our suffering might have a limiter. That Jesus will suffer patiently and not get tired. And finally, that Jesus will finish triumphantly. That Jesus will, I want you to notice, he says, he will not grow faint or be discovered till he has established the justice. That the servant is going to come and he's going to come to bring about justice. But he's going to, and he's going to come and bring it about until it's brought about. That Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to hang there until it is finished. That our Savior, our servant, doesn't come with half measures. He doesn't come and give up on you because it gets hard. He doesn't save all the other people. Then when it finally comes to you, you've got too much for him to handle. He is in this until it is finished. He will bring about the good until all justice has been right and rectified and this world has been made as it was supposed to be. My servant is actually a kingly title. It brings into our mind David, who is described as my servant. And it says that, that David is the servant of the Lord and David goes on conquest for the Lord and he, he goes against all the enemies of the Lord and he conquers them. And this servant, this servant is going to do that, but in greater degree. But I want you to see something. What we're witnessing here is a bit of a coronation. That the servant is going to come and he's not going to stop until justice is established in all the earth, until the coastlands have the law of the Lord. But once he's victorious, do you remember what it says he's going to bring about? That this king is not going to gather everybody up in the Colosseum and deliver a rousing speech, championing all of his values and virtues to the kingdom. That his victory parade is going to walk over to the prisons and open up the prison doors first. That his victory parade is not going to take him to the hall of fame. It's going to take him to the hospital rooms. And in the hospital rooms, he's going to make all of the sick well again. 
that his victory parade is going to land him right in the midst of the cemetery. And there in the midst of the cemetery, his victory is going to watch as all of his exiled people march out of exile from their graves. And so what Isaiah wants us to see, what Isaiah wants us to see is that our hope and encouragement to keep going is not found in a person uh, not found in a thing that we can purchase. It's not found in a place that we can go. It's not found in a thing that we can have. It's found in the person who came. It's found in the person who came. And because he has come, and because he has been victorious, brothers and sisters, we can keep going. Let me pray for us this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.